Ephesians as a book is really good for us going, uh, complementing our First Timothy study. If you think about Scripture, there's three letters that goes to the church at Ephesus. This particular book, which we call Ephesians. First Timothy is to address to Timothy personally, but also to the church at Ephesus. And then Second Timothy that we'll get into later this summer is addressed that way. So I thought it would be a good compliment to look at uh, Ephesians. Let me start this way. Do you ever wonder when you look at the news, you read papers, you hear all the reports, what is going on in the world? I mean, why is it as bad as it is? Every generation asks that same question. It can't possibly be worse than it is right now. I mean, you can go back to the beginning of time. And if you are reading your Bibles and going through that, and you're reading the Old Testament, you would get a sense of, oh, maybe it's not so bad right now. Okay, so every age deals with its own issues, but the question is still there. Why is it so bad? It's because sin has entered into the world. Paul, in this letter to Ephesians, will say in chapter 6, we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against rulers and powers and principalities and cosmic powers. And then he goes on to talk about the armor of God and how we have to equip ourselves to do the work of ministry because it's a battle. But Paul does something in Ephesians which is beautiful. And this will be the the big picture here. In Ephesians chapter 1, he is talking about his great work of salvation. You know, blessed blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to unfold how the triune God has saved us. He has predestined us, He has chosen us, but He does all this work. But there in verse 10 is a little pearl of wisdom that helps answer the question, why is everything going on in the world the way it is? It says this in verse 10 of chapter 1, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, Things in heaven and things on earth. And you say, Jeff, how does that answer the question? If you look at Ephesians, big picture wise, chapters 1, 2, and 3, which is all the, the indicatives, all the facts, this is the objective truth of who we are in Christ. And then he's going to apply that to our lives, our relationships. The church in chapter 4, marriages in chapter 5, he's going to talk about employees, and then he's going to... in slaves and, and that type in, in six and then children obey your parents and then he goes into the armor of God taking the gospel out to the world what does this have to do with this fullness of time this plan and everything that's going on if you've ever been to a movie theater they used to when you'd, you'd go to the movie theater the curtain would be closed and, and then when things were getting ready to be started the curtain would be pulled back and, and you'd see the big screen before you. And then it would show you these previews and trailers of things that are to come. God is, through Paul and the Holy Spirit, unveiling His cosmic plan for the ages in the book of Ephesians. It's a big deal. It is to unite all things in Christ. Because of the fall, because of man's rebellion, 
in Genesis chapter 3, we all in Adam sinned. And you go, that's not fair. Yeah, but he was our representative. And you go, that's still not fair. I, I, I wasn't there. I, didn't, I, don't have a, I don't have a choice in this matter. You're telling me I, I have that? Yes, but you also have a beauty that Christ is your representative. And if you believe in him, the sin is taken away. Eternal life is bestowed upon you. And you are now in fellowship with God. So you can't have one without the other. And, and the beauty of this is you simply have to believe. Don't get caught up in predestination. Don't get caught up in election. Those are great doctrines that we hold to as a Reformed Presbyterian church. But don't get caught up in that. God is sovereign. God does His work. Our responsibility when we hear the Word of God proclaimed is to believe. It's so simple a child can do it. But in this text, this big picture of what's going on, God's unveiling this cosmic plan. And so we get to chapter 2, and he goes back. He looks back, and then he's going to look to the present, and he's going to look to the future. And, and there's three words that I really want to park on today. Status, practice, and nature. Status, practice, and nature. Both past and then the present future. Status, present, and nature. And then we're going to look at those glorious words that are in the center of this text. But God. But God. So that's, that's what we're going to do. Now, I have an opening illustration. And I want you to know, I wrote this in July of 2011. Okay, that's when I taught Ephesians in adult Sunday school. And so I thought, okay, the lesson that I did on Monday night doesn't have an introduction to go into it. I need something to kind of put out there. And I pull it up this morning, and I look at it, and I go, they're not going to believe this. Here's another mountain vista type illustration for everybody to hear. And so we're going to do it anyway. <laughs> and it's another California one too. I'm sorry, I'm a native Californian. <laughs> We're going to get through this one way or the other this morning. So Mount Whitney is considered south, southern California. It's south of central California. Mount Whitney, it's the highest peak in the continental United States. Not in the United States. That's McKinley in Alaska. But Mount Whitney is the highest point in the continental United States. It's 14,495 feet. And it is a pristine place. It gets great snowfall. There's lakes up there. They are crystal clear, kind of a turquoise looking color. The tributaries that come off the snow melt go down into the San Joaquin Valley. They, they make fertile this land in the San Joaquin Valley that grows every kind of fruit, vegetable known to man. And they make so much of it, they're so bountiful that they ship it out throughout the world, across the United States. And it's quite a site for those who want to journey up and try to hike to the peak. And all that I talked about, all that rainfall, all the snowfall, all of it goes to the west. If you look to the east and a little bit to the south is the Mojave Desert. There's a place there called Death Valley. And it's called Death Valley for a reason. I've been there. 
It holds the record hottest temperature in the U.S., 134 degrees Fahrenheit. 134 degrees. When you drive there and you're on the road, the heat, and we went in the summer. Well, I won't call my dad stupid, but I just did. (laughs) Summer vacation, Death Valley. Whoopee! (laughs) We're in a 1964 Ford with no air conditioning. Okay? The windows are down. And you see the vapors coming off the road, and that's when we saw mirages. I mean, it would look like water's out there, but there's no water. But we go to Death Valley. We're going to see the lowest point, 280 feet below sea level, 280 feet. There's nothing there. There's a sign that says Death Valley. But there's no life. There's, there's some cactus. Yeah, there's a few things, but we can't live there. It, it's, it's too hot in the, in the winter months, maybe, but there's no water. There's no land to grow crops on or anything. It's sand, it's cactus, everything else. So you have a beautiful picture of contrast here from a low hell on earth, Death Valley, to a peak, the difference almost 15,000 feet where there's beauty and everything else. That's what Paul's doing in this text here. He's wanting to paint a contrast so stark that it makes the gospel attractive. He he wants you to see what you once were and what you are now. And that should motivate us and spur us on into worship, evangelism, witnessing, and making disciples. He starts off this whole text talking about what we once were. And it's our status. There's that first word. Our status is that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We're dead. It's not figuratively speaking. It is literally speaking. We are dead. You go, but Jeff, I'm sitting here this morning. I'm, I'm living. Yes, the death that's being talked about is spiritual death here and now and physical death to come. We decay in our bodies. I'm getting older. I've got spots and wrinkles and things that I didn't used to have. But we decay and we will one day die. But when we sinned in Adam, we died. We are dead. And the dead can do nothing for themselves. Our status is we can't act on our own behalf. Now think about this for just a moment. Brian Chappell tells this story, so I'm not going to take credit for it. He says, imagine you were with Jesus and the disciples when they went went to visit Mary and Martha. And Lazarus is dead. And they actually delayed getting there. And so Lazarus is already bound in the grave clothes and he is in the tomb. And they say, if you would have been here, he'd still be alive. But Brian Chappell says, dead is dead. He said, now imagine you going along with Jesus there and and, and you go up to the tomb and you go, hey, Lazarus, wake up. (laughs) Jesus is here to see you. you. You wouldn't do that. Doesn't matter how much coaxing, come on, Lazarus, wake up. All you gotta do is take that first step and he'll do the rest. We can't do anything. Our status is such as we are dead. We are absolutely, desperately 
in need of a Savior. So that's our status. Now what's our practice? He gets into that and he talks about three things that we practice when we're separated from God. We follow the things of the world, we follow Satan, and we follow the flesh. Those are three active agencies that are under the dominion, the rule of Satan and his demonic realm. We of all people, when this veil is torn back for us and we get to see the big picture of God's cosmic plan to reunite all things in Christ Jesus, when we see that and we see what we are apart from Christ, we desperately need a Savior. And so what we practice is what happens in the world. So we shouldn't be surprised when we see people do the things that they, that they do. I mean, I'm surprised. I go, how could they do that? You read of a mass shooting. You, you, you read of all these events that are going on, crooked politicians and this payout over here and how f- things are manipulated in the stock market, all this. this, this sinful behavior. And you go, how do they do that? They're enslaved. They're bound. That's their status. That's their practice. And it's all because it's their nature. That's the third word. Status, they're dead in their sin. Practice is they do the things according to the world, according to the flesh, according to Satan. And none of them are good. Oh, they may not be as bad as they possibly can be, just like we're depraved. That's what we call it, our inability. It's not that we are as bad a sinner as we possibly can be, but we are tainted through and through. And the world's that same way. I heard from a school teacher not too long ago talking about the school system and how it's just going down the drain. And, and we won't even recognize our school systems five years from now, ten years from now, and you go, why did they want to go that direction? Why, why doesn't someone stand up? Why doesn't someone change this? They're acting according to their status, what they practice, and their nature. Their nature is to do the things according to the world, according to the flesh, and according to Satan. They're by nature children of wrath. Now John says in his gospel that he, when he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's going to do three things. He's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. Those three things. The sin that is in our hearts separates us from God. The righteousness that we don't have and that we need that is only in Christ Jesus and impending judgment for those who don't follow Christ and believe. Our nature is totally against that. We need a Savior. We need God to take action on our part and that's what Paul gets to next. Two words. Some say the greatest two words back-to-back in Scripture, but God. You ever have a conversation with someone, you're on a topic, and you start out maybe in a positive direction or a negative direction, and you're talking for a little bit, and the other person says, I hear a but coming. I hear a but coming. This is the greatest but that is ever uttered to mankind. But God. And instead of three things... Status, practice, and nature. God gives four words. Four beautiful words. 
mercy, love, grace, and kindness. He will speak about those in the next four verses. But God, being rich in mercy, that means there's an endless supply of mercy. You can't extinguish it. It is pity upon us. It is deliverance from misery. I love that definition. Deliverance from misery. God has mercy. He says in the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. To have compassion. He sees us that way. While we were yet sinners, He sees us that way. To have mercy upon us. So when we look at the world and we say, why is everything going on the way it is? Because they don't have Jesus. How can we change that? Not through legislation. Not through governments. Not through different policies. We change it one heart at a time through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you ever think that you had that much power? You know Christ. You know the gospel. It has the power to change and raise the dead. So God does this first of all by His rich mercy towards us. And then He goes beyond that. He says, the great love with which He loved us. There is nothing loving about us. There's really not. God tells Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, you want to know why I love you? It's not because you're the biggest, not because you're the greatest army. I love you because I love you. So He shows us mercy. He shows us love. And while we're in this state of being dead in our trespasses and sins, He makes us alive together with Christ. He raises us up with Him and He seats us with Him in the heavenly places. God changes, does all the work. He changes our status. He changes our nature and our practice. And yes, I did reverse those last two things. I talked about status, practice, and nature. Now it's status, nature, and practice. Because we can't practice what God asks us to do until we have a new nature. The confession that we just did from Jeremiah 31, that having a new heart, God's law written on our hearts, that we can live it out. So God takes us and makes us alive together with Him. There's three things He does. He makes us alive together with Him. He raises us up together with Him. And He seats us together with Him. Those three words, I'm adding words that may not be in your translation. It is in the first one. Together. There's a prefix in the Greek that's S-U-N, soon. And it means together with, together. Together. This is describing union with Christ. How we are taken out of the pit of sin, despair. We are in the death valley of our souls. And God from peaks of heaven like Mount Whitney reaches down and He grasps us and He takes us up. He gives us new life. We would call that regeneration, a new heart that we can believe and he does that together with Christ as Christ was raised from the dead so too we are raised with him and then he seats us with 
him in the heavenly places. Now the interesting thing, I shared this with the class on, on Monday night. All three of these verbs that are used here, to be made alive, to be raised, and to be seated, is in the Greek aorist tense. That means it happened at a particular point in time, and that action carries on into the future. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, not only were you made alive right now, right now, you were also raised spiritually right now. And you were seated with Him spiritually in the heavenly places. Just as Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, there are thrones up there for you to rule and reign with Him. Spiritually right now. I know that's hard to even grasp. That'll blow your mind to think about that. But Paul's whole point here is in this grand scheme, the veil being pulled back for you to see the big picture. Your inheritance that you have is a glorious one. And it's an already and it's a not yet. Everything that we have is in Christ. He is seated at the right hand, so we are with Him, spiritually speaking. That should give us confidence. It should give us boldness. It should give us comfort. It should motivate us. And so Paul puts this out. Your, your status has changed. You're now united with Christ. You're together with Him. And you're raised with Him. Your new nature is to be seated with Him in the heavenly places. In the Sermon on the Mount, we learn the Lord's Prayer. And in the Lord's Prayer, we say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's how this happens. You're seated with Christ. When you read the Word, it says, Go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit in you so you can say, Yes, Lord, and do it. You have the power of the resurrection in you to do it. He's not asking you to do anything He hasn't equipped you already to do. That's the beauty of this. So you have a new status and a new nature, but what's your practice? Paul gets into that. He says, now that you have this new nature, now what? Or what now? Or so what? He says, I want you to know that there's a reason for this. So in the coming ages, both present and future, that you and I might display, manifest, show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The immeasurable riches in His grace. And He goes on and He expands upon that grace. Talked about mercy already. Talked about love. Talked about kindness. But grace here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All of grace. All of grace. We get into parsing things and we'll look at verse 8 of, of Ephesians and many of us have memorized it over the years. For, for by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and it is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And we want to say, okay, the if it is grace. That's the antecedent. Or we'll say the it is faith itself. Or the it is salvation. Well, the it is all of it. All of it's by grace. The grace that's given is grace. Paul says in Romans, grace upon grace. The faith that you receive, that you can believe, it's a gift. And salvation, all of it, is a gift. So how then shall we live, as Francis Schaeffer would say? Verse 10 answers that question. You are his workmanship. That word for workmanship actually means you're a work of art. Gail and I were driving home the other night. We're on 121, and we're headed south of just just at sundown. And there is the biggest multicolor sun that we had seen in a long time. I mean, it kind of has yellow at the top, and then it goes through shades of yellow and red. There was a few clouds in the sky, and the whole horizon was ablaze, if you will. The, 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 the colors going there and then headed backward, going from these warm colors to then a purple in the distance toward the east. The artistry of God played out in display in just a sunset. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. And we, display, we saw it on display there. We are to display God's riches and His kindness and His grace towards us by showing the work of art that He's done in our lives. Michelangelo was once asked as he was chiseling on a piece of stone. He said, what are you doing? He replied, I'm liberating an angel from this stone. That's what God is doing with us. Little by little, liberating us to look more like the image of Christ. That's what we're to display. When you see a changed life that continues to change and become conformed, it makes a difference in the world. People see you differently. Why do you do the things that you do? Why do you say the things that you do? So we are to manifest His work of art that He's done. He not only created us in His image, but He recreated us into the image of Christ. That should excite us. And then he says, I have prepared works for you to walk in. They're ordained. Some for me, some for you. All you're tailor-made to do this. And you go, well, what are those works? It's the Word of God that we already have. He's already told us. He doesn't name names, doesn't save the people. But he does say, you will be my witnesses. You will teach. They go, well, I'm not a teacher. Well, you teach your children. You teach them to pray. You teach them who Jesus is. That's enough. You just have to teach what you've gleaned out of the Word of God to others. Be a witness. That's what we're to do. We should be motivated to do this. These walks, these these. these ordained good works that we're to walk in. Now Paul has done something here to pull back the veil so we can see who we once were, our status, our practice and our nature. Who we are now, our status in Christ. What our new nature is to be redeemed, forgiven of our sins. 
and a new practice to go forth and be witnesses. But we do it humbly because he says by grace we have been saved. It's not of ourselves. And we do it out of love for him and a love for humanity. We begin to see the world the way God sees the world through Christ. We look around and go, how, why do they do these things? Why do people do the things that they do? We almost hate others. But if we pray for others, if we pray for Christ's kingdom to come and come to consummation, it is a gathering of all His people from the four corners of the earth. He uses us in that process. We get to be a part of this cosmic plan that has united all things in Christ Jesus. Isn't that exciting? I hope it is. Well, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we do thank you this morning that we can open your word, that we can see that you have a plan for the ages, and it's all in Christ Jesus. That we were once dead in our sins, but you have made us alive in Christ. You you have raised us from the dead, and you have seated us with Christ. We are now sons and daughters of you. And we do pray that you would give us gracious hearts filled with gratitude that seek to do your will, to seek to change the world through your word, through your spirit, and be instruments in your hands, all for your glory.